said, this is week four of our series called Broken Heroes. It's going through the book of Judges. And uh, let me give you a quick snapshot, because I realize some of you may be coming in fresh, uh, not a part of this series so far, or maybe some of you just need a refresher. So I'm going to give you a quick overview of the book of Judges in my own words. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you. And this is it. Judges is this. God's people were so broken that God raised up heroes called judges to save them. But even the best of the judges were broken people. Broken heroes leading broken people is a recipe for the dumpster fire of judges. And that leaves God's people longing for a divine hero. That is judges kind of in a nutshell. Now, this week we're going to jump into a new judge and talk about him. His name is Gideon. It was Gideon, and Gideon actually has stories that kind of span several chapters of the book of Judges, starting in chapter 6. You can open your Bibles and go there, but we are going to do Gideon in two parts. So this is Gideon part one. Next week, we'll do part two. What we're going to see in the story of Gideon is three things that every single one of us needs from God today. Three things that all of us need from God today, we're going to see in the story of Gideon, and they are transformation, identity, and proof. Transformation, identity, and proof. So, with that said, let's start with transformation. Judges chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to Judges chapter 6. A reminder also that we have a church app that you can get into that actually has all of the notes that go up on the screen, and you can even add your own notes in or follow along as we go. Judges chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Here's what it says. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Here we go again. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian overpowered Israel, and because of Midian, the people of Israel made for themselves the dens that are in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. They would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel and no sheep or ox or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. So that they laid waste the land as they came in. Then, and Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. All right, so first, this is starting out again, once again, with the cycle of the judges repeating the people of God once again go back to their evil ways. They start worshiping idols. And then what always happens is they begin to be oppressed by another nation or another people group. This time it was the Midianites. And the Midianites oppressed the Israelites in a different way than other nations before this. What they did is they ravaged all of their livestock and their crops. They essentially cut off their food supply. As soon as they would plant something, they would come and destroy it. They were literally starving the people of Israel to death. And it was devastating to the point where the Israelites had to hide. They had to go live inside of caves in in places where they could not be found and try to grow food and provide for themselves. And I'm going to come back to that in a a little bit, but that's what was happening. And so um, they were being ravaged. They were being um, completely oppressed. And here's what God does. 
Instead of sending, instead of sending a judge, he does something else before he sends a judge. And I want to point that out to you. Verse 7 says this. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in, whom, in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. All right, so this is really interesting because, like I said, instead of God saying, okay, the people are crying out, and I'm going to send them a judge, he first sends them a message from a prophet. And the question is, why did he first send them a message? Why is this one different? All right, I, uh, I told you about um, the book Judges for You by Tim Keller which is a commentary that we've used. Our community groups are using this. This is what Tim Keller says about this particular passage. I'm going to put it up on the screen. He says this, God's first response to the people's cry is not to send a savior or salvation, but to give them a sermon. Before they can appreciate the rescue that will come, the people need to understand why they need rescuing. So, what Tim Keller is saying, essentially, and the reason that God had sent a prophet first before he sends a hero is because before you can be rescued, you need to know why it is that you actually need to be rescued, right? And that's really what we're getting at here. Um, so I think here's what, here is a potential problem with the Israelites right now. Uh, the problem is this. The cycle keeps continuing, and life is really hard. But the question is, are the Israelites sorry for the situation that they find themselves in? Or are they sorry for what they have done to the God who continually loves them and saves them? And, in, and that's a question I think we all need to kind of ask ourselves. It's like when you are, are stuck in sin and you are seeing the consequences of your own sin and it's hurting you and it's hurting people around you and you're really having a hard time, are you sorry and regretful that you are in the situation that you're in or are you actually sorry to the God whom you are hurting when you do those things or the people you are hurting when you do those things. I think what you see in this is that what, why God might have sent them a message before a judge is because they needed to understand that their sorrow needed to be being sorry about what they've been doing to God and not sorry for the situation that they're in. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death what's happening with the israelites is the difference between godly grief and uh, worldly grief godly grief actually leads to true repentance worldly grief is just being sorry for the situation that you're in uh, so let me uh let me give you a quick a quick understanding of this true repentance always means two things. True repentance happens when you realize two things. I'm going to put these on the screen. Number one, you realize what you have done to God. And number two, you realize what God has done for you. If you realize those two things, 
you're on your way to true repentance. What you have done to God and what God has done for you. So let me give you a tangible example. Uh, early on in uh, my marriage with Jillian, there was a, a point in time where I had done something that, that hurt my wife. And I knew it was going to hurt my wife, but I needed to admit it to her. I needed to own it. So I came to my wife and I told her what I had done. And uh, what happened in that moment were two things that were really important. The first thing is that she was really hurt by it. And she showed me that she was hurt by it. And because she was hurt by it, I, I, oh, it hurt me. Because I'm going, I, I just severed, I, I, I hurt the relationship that I have with the closest person to me on this earth, my wife. But then the other thing that she did that made all the difference is that she chose to forgive me in that moment. And, and what I want to tell you is this. I hurt my wife, and she chose to forgive me. And my understanding of both of those things led me to run away from any sin that was going to hurt her and run towards God because it made all the difference. Both of those things really matter with true repentance. When you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you always see two things, and you have to see these two things. You look at the cross of Jesus Christ, you see the pain that your sin has caused God, that Jesus had to die like that. And at the very same time, when you look at the cross, you see that God loved you so much that he was willing to send his son to go through that so that you could be forgiven. It's those two things combined that lead to true repentance. And I think that's what you see here in this story in the book of Judges. God is giving them a message to help them know what true repentance actually looks like. Listen, I want you to know today that if you are uh, if you're feeling stuck, stuck in a sin, maybe you feel like the cycle of the judges where you just keep going back to the same thing over and over again, and it's, it's hurting you, and it's hurting people around you, and, uh, but you can't seem to change. You can't seem to turn from it and go the other way. One of the reasons could be that you don't quite understand true repentance. You don't understand that when you sin, you are crucifying Jesus all over again, that you are actually hurting God. And at the very same time, God wants to still forgive you. And when you understand those two things, true repentance begins to take place, and you run away from your sin and into the arms of God. All right, so first point that you see in the book of Judges is that we all need transformation, and transformation comes through true repentance. True repentance. All right, let me go to the next one because I haven't even talked about Gideon yet. So number two is we're going to look at an identity, and we all need an identity as well. Judges chapter 6, let's go on in this story. Verse 11 it says this, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth of Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezerite. Man, why do they do this to me? Um, <laughs> while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord appeared to him, to Gideon, and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. All right, skip down to verse 16. 
And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. Um, Actually, let me go back. Um, Verse 15, verse uh, 14. I was wrong. You were probably right back there on the slides. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. All right, so... Once again, what you're going to see here in the book of Judges is that God raises up a very unlikely hero to be the one to save his people. And if you're reading this passage, one of the things that you hear is that God looks at Gideon and says, Oh, mighty man of valor. He says, Use your might to save Israel. And you would think if God says that to Gideon, that this must have been this impressive warrior with like a resume of being commanders of armies and all kinds of things. You know, that he was this big brute guy that God had prepared for this time and for this moment. But it wasn't that at all. It wasn't even close. When God looked at him and said, when the angel of the Lord came down and said, mighty man of valor, Gideon was hiding. He was in a cave. And he was trying to make food in a cave because he was afraid that the Midianites were going to ravage him and the food and all of that. So he was literally hiding. And then he says this, uh, I think you got the wrong guy because I'm actually the, uh, from the weakest clan in all of Israel. And even in my house, I'm the weakest, youngest in my father's house. Gideon's going, I am the weakest in my house of the weakest clan of all of Israel. And if you haven't noticed, Israel's pretty weak right now. We're getting dominated by the Midianites. Why would you ever choose me? I want to give you an idea of what this really is like. I want to drive this point home. So I played college soccer, and I like to tell people I played college soccer because I'm proud of playing soccer at that level. But what I'm not as proud of is when people ask me what... uh, what division did you play for? All right? Hey, stop laughing. Um, we, I played for literally the lowest division you could possibly play for in college soccer. All right? So uh, it's NCCAA Division Two. Notice I didn't say NCAA. I, I had an extra C in there. It's National Christian College Athletic Association. And it wasn't even Division One of that. It was Division Two, and there was no Division Three. All right, so... <laughs> It's, it's the lowest of the low. Now, I will say, like, I was a decent soccer player. My team had some success at the bottom rung of college soccer. But there were some teams that were really bad in our division. What this is like, what, Gideon, what choosing Gideon is like, is this. It's like taking the worst player on the worst team and the worst division of college soccer and saying, you're going to be the hero of the next World Cup. It's a joke. There is no way it's going to happen. Gideon was, quite frankly, the last person that anyone would have chosen to be the one to save his people. And yet, like we've seen throughout Judges, that made him God's perfect choice. And uh, there's a a really important lesson I want to talk about in this. And here's the lesson. The lesson is this. You are who God says you are. You are who God says you are. And um, what we see 
with Gideon is that he was the weakest in his family, or the weakest clan, or the weakest nation, and yet God calls him mighty man of valor. And Gideon goes, that's a joke. And everybody around him goes, that's probably a joke, but it wasn't a joke to God. Because this is the way God always works. What he was doing is he wasn't telling Gideon he was a mighty man of valor because Gideon was mighty, but because God was going to make him mighty. And God does that. That's the, that's the way he works. He might have been the weakest of the weakest of the weakest, but God was saying, no, no, I'm making you into a mighty man of valor. And this is the point. When God gets a hold of your life, there's something that happens. When God gets a hold of your life, you are no longer defined by who you think you are or what people say you are because God wants to give you a whole new identity that's not defined by you or the people around you, but defined by him. And there is nowhere that we see that more than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what you see, if you really understand what Jesus has done, this is what happens when you come to know Jesus as your Savior. You, you actually uh, get a whole new identity. Everything changes. God sees you completely different. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I want you to know that it, what happens when you come to know Christ is it's, it's not you that changes your identity. It's Jesus that changes your identity. What Jesus did for you is he took your place so that you could be reconnected to the God who made you. So God looks down on you because of Jesus and he no longer sees you as who you think you are or who you once were or who people say you are. He sees you as somebody who is bought with the blood of Jesus, having extreme value. He doesn't look down on you and see you as, um, you know, somebody who is a, a loser, but somebody who is loved. Not somebody who is uh, insecure, but somebody who is eternally secure. Like that, that's the way God sees every single one of us. It's all about who God is making you into, not who you were, but who he has made you to be in Christ. And that's what we see in this passage you are who God says you are. He has the final word. And the final word was given at the cross of Jesus when he gave his life for you. Here's the best part of it all. The best part of it all is it takes all the pressure off of us. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but all of us are walking around trying to find an identity. We all want an identity. And this takes the pressure off of us. We're not needing to create a brand for people to follow. We're not looking for subscribers on our YouTube channel or trying to figure out how many people like our photos on Instagram. We are focused on only what God thinks of us because he's the only one that can give you an identity that lasts forever for all of eternity. So that's the second thing we see. We first of all see transformation in the story of Gideon, but we also see something about our identity. The last point is this, that God also gives us proof. God also gives us proof that we can trust him. I know in this room there are um, those who struggle with doubting God and doubting the truth of God. 
And some of you are like real scientific people and that you need proof. You need, you need something very tangible. Otherwise, it's hard for you to really confirm that you can trust God and believe in all of this stuff that we're talking about. And I want you to know if that's you, you're not alone. Gideon actually wanted proof. He wanted a lot of proof. And so um, let's, let's keep reading this story, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord said to him, but I will be with you, and you, will, you shall strike Midian, the Midianites as one man. And he said to him, If now I have found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. All right, so literally the angel of the Lord came down and spoke to Gideon, but he's like, still not sure. Show me a sign. So here's what happens. I'm going to summarize the next part. Gideon makes this meal for the angel of the Lord. He puts together this meal, and the angel of the Lord says, great, set it on a rock, and then pour broth over it. I don't, I don't know why, but that's what he said. Pour broth over it. So he pours broth over it. The angel of the Lord points his staff at the meal, and it goes up in flames and just vanishes. And Gideon's like, all right, now we're talking. I, 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 think, I, I think I got my confirmation. But the interesting thing is that the story goes on, and if you skip down into the last part of chapter 6, it seems that Gideon still didn't have enough proof. He still didn't. There's this famous story, I think many of you know, about the fleece. Remember the story about the fleece? Well, what, what happens is Gideon is, he's, by the way, he hasn't even gone to battle yet. He's still just trying to get proof that he's supposed to be the warrior to take these people to battle. And so he goes, all right, God, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put a fleece out all night. And in the morning, if the fleece is wet, but all the ground around it doesn't have any dew on it, is completely dry, then I'll know. Then I'll know that you're going to save Israel through me. Right? And so sure enough, the, the morning comes, and he goes out there, and the fleece is all wet, and the ground around it is all dry. And he goes... Maybe that was just a coincidence. <laughs> so he goes, one more time. It was tomorrow. This is what we're going to do. Actually, we're going to do the opposite. I'll trick him. See if this works. I'm going to say, I'm going to put the fleece out, and I want it to be completely dry on the fleece, and then the whole ground around it to be wet. That's going to be harder to do, right? So sure enough, he wakes up in the morning. And by the way, he's saying, God, don't be mad at me this whole time, because he knows this isn't right. He wakes up in the morning, and sure enough, though, the ground is wet around it, the fleece is dry. And once again, Gideon has more and more and more proof that God is in this. Now listen, the story goes on uh, in the next chapter to talk about how Gideon did defeat the Midianites, right? Spoiler alert. It happened. But what I want to talk about as we close this time for part one is the proof, the proof that Gideon needed. He needed all, all of this, this proof. And it's really interesting because I think there are so many of us that, that can relate with Gideon. Like what we, we come in week in, week out, and we hear about God, and we've seen lives changed, and we understand the truth of Jesus, but it, it's so easy to begin to go, but God, if you would, if you would just come down like, and just, not, just hit me in the face, you know? And I want, I want you to know this, that what Gideon did was not an example to follow. 
It was actually wrong of Gideon to test God. That's something that I think a lot of people miss here. Because you've seen this before, you've heard this, these stories where people go, yeah, and I said to God, if you do this, then I will follow you for the rest of my life, and whatever happened, happened. I think that's God's grace in the midst of our doubt. But it's not right to test God. Gideon should have been clear that God was in this, but he wasn't. And I think we are the same way. We look at God and we go, you know what? I don't know if you're real. And we start trying to make deals with him and saying different things. We just say, if you just come down, if you just come down and just like right in front of me, then I would know. Then I would have the proof. But here's what I want you to know. He did that. He already did that. God came down in the form of Jesus 2,000 years ago. It's a historical fact. He was born into this world. He lived the life that we were all supposed to live. He died a martyr's death in our place. And then he rose again. But then he appeared to a whole bunch of people over a period of, you know, 40 days. All these eyewitnesses, and I know you're not one of them. Like, I'm not one of them. We weren't actually there at the time. But there's eyewitnesses, and we can read all about it. There's more historical proof for the accuracy of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus than there is that Napoleon Bonaparte actually led the French Revolution. And yet, we're not sitting around going, I just really need Napoleon to come down right in front of my face, like right now, so that I can believe that he really did what, he, what everybody said they did in the history books. What I want you to know is that Jesus is the proof you need. Jesus is all the proof that you need that God loves you and that God saved you. You don't need a fleece because Jesus is the fleece. When you wake up tomorrow morning, you don't have to look for signs that he's real because what Jesus did is he went to the cross. He paid for sins with his own blood and he did it one time for all time and he won't do it again, the Bible says. Because it worked the first time. And if you place your faith in Jesus, what you believe is that now he has ascended into the right hand of God. And he's not standing, he's sitting. Which means it is done. There's nothing more to do. So when you wake up in the morning, every single morning, don't look for a sign. Look at Jesus and what he's done because his blood still covers sins. It still works. He is all the proof you need. And if, you, and if it's not enough, as a follower of Christ, you need to know this, that the last thing is that when Jesus left, he gave us the Holy Spirit, that he would come make a home inside of each of us so that we would always be reminded that Jesus was the one that transformed us, that Jesus was the one that gives us an identity, and that Jesus is all the proof that we ever need. Listen, as we kind of close out today, we felt like taking communion is kind of the the perfect way to close out this service. Because um, when you take communion, it's this tangible, it's this tangible thing that God has given us to remember Jesus. So the band's actually going to come out and we're going to kind of prepare for communion now. But I want to, I want to tell you that when you take communion, I want you to think about this. When you put that bread in your mouth and when you drink down that juice, uh, it's, a, it's something tangible. It's something that you can feel. 
And it's supposed to remind you that 2,000 years ago, Jesus was leading his disciples in the very same thing because it was supposed to be a reminder that Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was shed on your behalf. So today, I want you to look to the cross and remember two things when you look to the cross. That it was the pain of your sin that held him there. We did that to him. And at the very same time, it was his willingness to go there that shows us that his love and grace has forgiven us. Those two things are what true repentance means. So maybe today, would you spend some time with the Lord repenting of things that you need to bring before him? And would you be free to run away from sin and into the arms of God?